Hey, uh, there's no greater joy in this life than to uh, witness the, the success of one of your children. You know, if they're in sports or in music or competition of any kind, uh, or if they graduate from kindergarten, you know, there's no greater joy than for parents to celebrate their kids. But there's no greater heartache than to watch your kids suffer, whether it be a rejection or a breakup or they don't make the team or, or they injure themselves or they get sick. And so there's no greater heartache for a parent as well. Sometimes, uh, well, there, there's a single mom in Scripture. In uh, First Kings, we've been looking at the life of Elijah and who came to minister to this single mom, a widow, actually, uh, had to watch her son suffer. And because of it, her mother's heart was suffering during a national drought, which led to famine. And so this, this pair, they became hungry to the point of starvation. They experienced pain and hopelessness in the last days of their life. And so this widow, uh, we're going to look at her heart. How did she respond to this crisis in her life? And I'd like us to ask the same question. How do we respond to crises in our lives as well? Uh, the first characteristic of this woman's heart was that she was hopeless. She had a hopeless heart because of all these things that we mentioned already. But then God showed up through the, his prophet Elijah. In 1 Kings 17, God said to Elijah, Go out once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. You know, God pursues us when our heart is broken, when we have hopelessness. God is the one who pursues us, sort of like in the New Testament parable of the good shepherd who goes out and looks for the little lost sheep that wandered off and is in great danger, isolated from the flock. And so the shepherd will leave the 99 and go look for the one. And in verse 11, uh, the woman said, or Elijah said, bring me please a piece of bread after asking for water and she acquiesced and then bring me some uh, bread please in verse 12 the woman responds as surely as the lord your god lives i don't have any bread only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug i'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die well elijah's request of this woman would have been unreasonable she knew that she didn't have enough supplies or ingredients to provide and, and, and make enough food for herself, her son, as well as this man. So this request uh, would have been unreasonable. But Elijah included in his request a promise, a promise from God. And she chose to believe this promise, which led her to belief. This woman had a believing heart. In verse 13, Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, The, flour, the jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. And she went away and did as Elijah had told her. This widow was willing to do what Elijah instructed her to do, to give first to him, which would have seen unreasonable, and then provide for herself and her son. This would have required risk. 
it would have required faith, believing faith. She could have responded, you know very well that we're starving here, Elijah, and yet you expect me to take care of your needs first with what little hope we have, what little food we have. But instead, the widow chose to believe the word of God as spoken by Elijah and therefore would experience God's miraculous provision as a result. We read in verse 15, So there was food every day for Elijah and for the, the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. God was faithful and hope was restored to this woman. But, you know, believing faith, when we believe the truth, it will only be faith as we act upon it, as we apply it, as we respond to it. So this woman had a responsive heart as well. Did she have a great faith? I don't think so. I mean, just moments earlier, she was hopeless. She was desperate. She was planning their last meal and then death. But I think... She had what Jesus would call a mustard seed amount of faith. And if you have just that much faith, then you can move mountains, Jesus said, as evidenced by her responsive heart to Elijah. You know, the world says, seeing is believing. You know, give me proof. Show me some evidence. Give me some science, then I'll believe it. That's what the world teaches. But the faith in God teaches believing is seeing. If you respond first, then you will see. This is what St. Augustine said. He, he said about this, faith is to believe what we do not see, and the reward of this faith is to see what we believe. Well, this woman ended up seeing the fulfillment of this promise, what she chose to believe, and that was miraculous multiplication of food day after day. So Elijah instructed the woman in verse 13 to first make a small loaf for me and then make something for herself. In other words, get out of the boat if you want to expect to walk on water. Uh, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Then all these things will be given to you, these things that you need. And God knows you need them, but seek first the kingdom of God. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah, call to me, God says, first, then I will tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. Uh, Proverbs, trust in the Lord first, in all your ways acknowledge him, then he will direct your paths. All these promises come with an attached uh, directive to apply the faith. Now, why is it that some people, when they discover a need, they're the they're the first ones to step up time and time and time again. Do they have more gifts, more abilities, more time, more finances, more resources? And I would say no, but they have a responsive heart to the Spirit's leading, the Spirit of God. Ellen Hansen was one, of, one such guy who passed away just about a year, year and a half ago, lived across the street uh, this way. Yeah, this way. And uh, Ellen... Um, you know, when Brush Up Mac happens every year and all the people from our community gather together and we try to clean up houses, Ellen Hansen went year after year in his late 70s, 80s. I remember one year I showed up early to help and then Alan was there and maybe one other person from our church. 
uh, early on. And then Alan was there every year as, as our um, contingency grew as well. Alan was always there. In fact, just a couple of years ago, when we painted the women's shelter windows, Alan was one of ten people from our church who painted windows with us one Saturday as an 82-year-old. Uh, he served men's, in the men's Bible study by uh, emailing all the men when he was living. This guy in his 80s, he was the computer geek of the group. Uh, he stuffed bulletins with his week, uh, wife every week. He would set up tables down the hallway, tear them down. He continued to serve even after his wife's death. He didn't skip a beat. He served meals on wheels to folks who were 10 years his younger. Um, and in fact, the night before he passed away, he was serving meals on wheels. And he took a double shift because someone couldn't make it. And uh, so, so Alan got home pretty late that night, that evening. And he decided he would sit down at the computer and write this email to me and the staff. He said, I received the praying for you card yesterday and your note along with the notes from eight staff members. I truly appreciate the remembrance on the first anniversary of Phyllis, my wife. I do not, uh, her home going. I do miss her and I'm thankful. Um, and then I also have the assurance of being with her again in a far better place in God's appointed time. Thank you and the staff again for your loving support, Alan. He wrote this on the evening before he died. Um, and uh, I can't help but think that he probably felt something was going on within him when he returned. And so what did he do? He did what he always did. He thought of others first. He wanted to make sure to thank the staff. He was an amazing man. I can think of many other examples of people who are led by the Spirit of God here. For example, just this last week, after men's prayer brick, not prayer brick, after men's uh, fellowship breakfast down in the library area, one guy heard about our broken fence over here in our parking lot, and once he heard about it, first time he'd heard about it, he said, hey, I'll take care of that. It's been broken for a long time, and within the end of the day, it was fixed because he responded. He was a responsive man of God. We can know God's word backwards and forwards. We can exegete it. We can debate it. We can study it. We can memorize it. We can teach it. We can apply God's word to our hearts. Uh, I'm sorry, but unless we apply God's word to our hearts, then it all ends up as head knowledge. We have all these Bible studies and Sunday school classes, but if we don't apply it, it will be what James calls dead faith. Faith without works is dead. It will be useless. It will be ineffective. It would be like offering a cookbook full of recipes and full-page uh, pictures of gourmet meals to a starving person. It would be like sharing an article of the 10 top purest bottled water companies to someone stuck in the middle of the uh, desert dying of thirst. People will be worse off for hearing the truth when it's not accompanied by tangible acts of compassion. When we confront people on social media uh, with the truth, with our truth, our convictions, but if, if uh, they're not accompanied with a heart of understanding and compassion, desire to build relationship, then it becomes noise, and in fact, it becomes offensive to one who disagrees with us. If we want others to know the truth, if it's not accompanied with compassion, it will be a clanging gong, and it will be more destructive than helpful. All grace and no truth 
will lead to license. You know, do whatever you want to do. It's the world's philosophy. You know, grace. You know, God loves everyone. You can live any way you want. All grace and no truth. But all truth and no grace leads to legalism and, and judgmental attitude. So that's why Scripture teaches us that Jesus was full of both grace and truth in John 1.14. And it instructs us to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4. We need both. Uh, this widow could have justifiably ignored Elijah for his request and rationalized that she needed to care for her own son and her own needs. And she could have done that. She could have chosen to do that, like many of us would choose to take care of our own needs first, our own family first. And if she did that, she would have eaten a nice meal, and then they would have starved to death and died. But because she chose to believe God's word to seek him first and, and, and look after others' needs even before their own, then she experienced God's miraculous provision in her life. This is how God works. When we step out in faith, he responds. And day after day, they would experience this miraculous provision of bread and oil. When God looks at our heart, does he see a heart that responds to his leading? But then something happened. There was a twist, a turn in their lives. And this heart that was responsive, all, all of a sudden, um, it, it, it all of a sudden, it reverted back. It defaulted back to what she had thought all of her life. It was a misguided heart at this time. And, and we can be that way. You know, we can be inconsistent like this. Our heart can be responsive and faithful, but then we can be disobedient and doubtful and anxious. A misguided heart. Verse 17, Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? This widow may have understood that as long as this man of God lives in our house and the presence of God is with us, then we will experience nothing but success and prosperity. We'll have food every day, we'll multiply. And, well, this, this is the prosperity gospel, and it's a false gospel that some churches teach. It teaches that um, it's God's will that all of us remain perfect, healthy, wealthy, and prosperous at all times if we're children of God and if we have enough faith. Well, this theology would be completely foreign to those who are in third world countries or in persecuted nations, our brothers and sisters in Christ. They know very well that they're going to suffer for Christ. It's a daily experience for them, and the Word of God promises that for those who are followers of Christ, will suffer. Blessed are the persecuted. This is their attitude. This world is not our home. We're just passing through this world. We're not going to get too comfortable here. We live for another kingdom. And so this is their attitude. And yet in America, we tend to have more of a prosperity gospel attitude at times. Like a pastor I watched on video last, on, on the internet last week, who uh, he made the national news because he was rebuking his con congregation because they failed to buy him a designer watch. So he was laying into him, man. He was irate with him. But someone in the congregation was taping him like this. And once it hit social media, then he came out with an apology once he realized that he'd been caught on tape. When this widow's son became ill and eventually died, it would have rocked her prosperity 
belief system. And this is how they thought in the old time. God's going to bless those who have faith. He's going to curse and punish those who are disobedient. That was the Old Testament idea that they believed. By her response, though, we can see that she would default to being blame, uh, to blaming others. She first blamed Elijah, and then she blamed God, and then she blamed herself. You know, when bad things happen in our lives, our first reaction can find is to find someone that we need to blame. You know, it's someone else's fault. You know, that my life is going south here. A teacher asked her stu- one student in her class, if you have 10 muffins and uh, a friend takes two of them, how many muffins are left? And the student replied, 10. Uh, l- let me try this again, the teacher said. Uh, you have 10 mush- muffins and your friend takes two muffins, how many muffins would be left? And his response was, 10 and one injured friend. <laughs> what we can do is we can either fight or flight, or we can freeze when bad things happen to us. All our negative responses. Um, and, and this is what this woman initially defaulted to. She started to blame others, like Elijah. She said in verse 18, she said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Why would you come into my house to have your God take my son away like this? We think about this all the time. You know, it happened in Jesus' day, hundreds of years later, in John 9. As he went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Whose fault is it? And Jesus responded, remember, neither is it his parents' fault, sin or his sin, but this happened so that the works of God may be displayed in him. This woman blamed God too. What do you have against me, man of God? Man of God. She connected him with God. If, if your God is so loving, Elijah, then, then why did he allow you to come into my house and why did he take my son I don't want anything to do with them if, if that's the God that you serve. Sometimes we blame God, and then sometimes we blame ourselves because of our, uh, because of our crisis, if you will. And it turns into shame, self-blame. In verse 18, did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Um, my sin. This woman, no doubt, had skeletons in her closet. She would have probably been convinced that all the negative things had happened to her in her life because of her past failures and God was punishing her or whatnot, or she deserved it. Her husband's death, she was a widow. Her poverty because of the drought. Her starvation and now her son's illness, which would lead to death because of her past sin. And when we experience trials in our life, we can wrongly conclude the same thing. You know, sometimes we reap what we sow, but many times things happen because we live in a fallen world and we will suffer because we will all eventually die one day and it'll be a difficult process, for example. Well, I I had, uh, during my last sabbatical, or just recently, um, when I experienced trials, I wrongly concluded the same thing. Um, Lord, what did I do? What is wrong in my life that I'm experiencing this misery in my life, Lord? Is it because I have been unfaithful to you? Have I been just going through the motions spiritually, Lord? Have I been 
putting you second place or third place in my life? Um, you're not priority. Um, am I not eating right or taking care of my body that I'm getting, feeling all these illnesses? Um, what's going on, Lord? And so I needed to repent, and I did repent. In fact, I repented day after day. I repented more than I've ever repented in my life because I wanted to get out of this funk. But as soon as I repented, I should have enjoyed the Lord's forgiveness and freedom. But I didn't because I listened to the liar, our enemy, Satan, who is the condemner and the accuser of the believers. And I got trapped in my shame. I blame myself. And I wonder how many believers are imprisoned in their shame, in their guilt. Well, God's word from beginning to end is good news. It's the good news of the gospel. Things like Psalm 103, God does not treat us as our sins deserve, thankfully, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. And at the moment we confess our sins, at that very moment, God's word tells us that he's faithful and just. And he cleanses us from all our unrighteousness. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so have I removed your transgression from you. So then why do I feel so guilty if God forgives me after I confess my sin? Well, it's because we still have memories, you know? God doesn't wipe out our memory, and our memories need to heal. And that sometimes takes time. You know, past mistakes and failures and, and injustices takes time to heal. And, and so that's a process, and he will heal those as well. But he immediately forgives our sins, and we no longer stand under condemnation of the enemy. But the prosperity gospel will inevitably have to find someone to blame. You didn't have enough faith, or they didn't have enough faith, or it's someone else's fault that you're going through this. So how, how would Elijah respond as I wrap this up? Um, he too could have blamed this woman. He could have blamed her for her unfair accusation against him. He could have blamed God. Why did you lead me to this woman? Only take her son, God. But instead, he responded. He didn't react. He responded with compassion and care for this woman and her son. In verse 19, give me your son, Elijah replied. And he took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on the bed. Now, when Elijah did this, he did a no-no. He violated the Old Testament law, which required people to never touch a dead person. In Numbers 19, whoever touches a dead person, body, of any person, shall be unclean for seven days. So that was like the first quarantine, you know, seven-day quarantine. Elijah set the precedent. After he touched this dead body, he would have to quarantine. He laid aside his own conveniences and well-being to care for this woman and her son. And then Elijah, of course, prayed to God for, on behalf of the son and, and woman. In verse 20, then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return. While Elijah didn't understand the reason 
for this tragedy. He lifted up the boy in his arms, physically touching him. And it's important to touch people who are suffering. And he lifted up the boy in his prayers, and he touched him spiritually. It's important to uh, pray for people as well. In verse 22, the Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child, carried him down from the room into the house, gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son's alive. This led to a deeper heart. This experience led to a deeper trust in God for this woman. And who wouldn't have a deeper trust? If you've ever witnessed a resurrection of someone from the dead, I think we'd all have a deeper trust, right? Not necessarily. Lazarus was raised from from the dead, and the religious people in Jesus' day hated him all the more and sought to kill Lazarus, who had just come back from the dead. I find that amusing and disturbing at the same time. This boy was brought back to life. It made for a happy ending to an inspirational Bible story. Woohoo! But we've never seen anyone raised from the dead. Well, don't be t- so sure about that. Did you look in the mirror this morning? If you know Jesus, then you saw someone who was raised from the dead. We were all born spiritually dead to God. We were all born on a fast track to physical death one day, leading to eternal death and separation from God because of our sin. But because Jesus came for us as a good shepherd comes for his lost sheep, and because we responded to him, then he said, you have, now have new life. You become a child of God that will live forever and ever. Not just now will you experience life, better life on earth, but it will extend to eternity. You will go from life to life. Once you die physically, your spirit goes from life to life, never experiencing death any longer because you've been raised from the dead. Verse 24, the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. It's interesting that she said, now I know. She had been experiencing miraculous provision in her jar day after day after day, God's provision. But now she says, now I know that you're man of God. That, that I, now I can trust him. This widow had enjoyed the blessing without really knowing the blesser. She had known, she had, she had trusted in the gift and rejoiced over the gift without really trusting in the giver or knowing the giver. But now she said, I know the giver of the gift. I have a deeper intimacy. And that's where we all want to be, isn't it? We all want to know the giver. We just don't want to experience his gifts because our lives will be like this then. But when we know the giver, and, and he's always faithful to his children, always. He'll never forsake those who trust in him. And I'm a living testimony here because I was ready to check myself in somewhere just a couple months ago. I was just that far gone in my thinking. But the Lord raised me out of that. He lifted me out of that just as he had years ago when I became a child of God. He's the God of resurrection, the God of life. Let's pray. 
And so thank you, Lord Jesus, for this day that we could celebrate your presence in worship today. You are here right now. You are here to bless the children, the infants, and to rejoice over them. You're here to bless each one of us, uh, whether we're in the twilight of years or, or newborn. Because, And thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters who have chosen to come and sit in your presence and worship you. Sit under the authority of your living word, which transforms hearts. Lord Jesus, I pray that we will forever grow closer to you and more intimate and a deeper trust in you like this woman experienced, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.